Welcome to another episode of How to Save the World. I'm Waveney Worth. And I'm Tim Batt. And we're very excited to have our very first Olympic medalist here ever on the show, Sarah Walker. Woohoo! Hey guys. Hey! <laughs> Thanks for coming. Yeah, no worries. It's, it's a good pleasure to, be here. to meet you. Yeah, you too. Likewise. So, for, I mean, I think you're a household name, of no introduction needed, but perhaps for those people who need a reminder, this is a three times world champion BMXing and in 2012, the silver medalist for, um, what do you call it? BMX? Racing. Racing. Yeah. yeah. Just that's it. Cover, yeah. cover all. On a in dislocated London. shoulder, no less. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. I love that, that was pretty intense build up for sure. Like having a dislocated shoulder. Um, three months out from the Olympics and thinking like this, that's it, we're we're done. And then <laughs> smashing it and yeah, getting I, a silver you know, medal. I, I couldn't do a push up at those really? Olympic wow. games. Yeah, really? I won an Olympic medal in BMX. Couldn't do a push up. Wow. <laughs> so there's hope for everyone. <laughs> that's, that's very inspirational, actually. Yeah, I is. can barely do a push up. Maybe I should yeah, start doing BMX. I exactly. do a push up. Maybe you could be an Olympic medalist too. Maybe I could. <laughs> How many like fractures and breaks have you had over your career? So I'm pretty sure the fact that I don't know 100 percent sure, but <laughs> it's 18. Like I, I'm 90, wow. probably only 90% sure it's 18. It's around that number. I've had none. Yeah. I've never broken like, a bone. It's funny though, because I'm probably, like my skin sensitivity is way worse. So like a um, graze, like taking ripping the skin off like your forearm or whatever or knees. Like it's probably like more painful than probably most of the bones that I've broken. Oh, true. So when you're saying you, you have like a heightened sensitivity yeah. to that kind of stuff. Yeah. So the, the bone... Level was like less like, painful. Oh, whatever. <laughs> You've just normalized I'm that. I'm like, oh, this is annoying. I bet it is actually. <laughs> Walk it off. You're, you're so competitive, obviously. Yeah. And then to have just time out like that. Do you, have you been hospitalized? Why are we talking about this? I just got so interested. Suddenly. <laughs> well, we've, we've got you on for yeah. this this um, Lightfoot project of yes. which you are now an ambassador, yeah. which we will get to yeah. um, very soon. But you do have like such a fascinating career and job and everything that, yeah. you know. There's questions. Yeah, it's unique, that's for sure. And why have you do a bit of biking, so... Oh, know. yeah, me and Sarah. Yeah, yeah. Can, I call, can I call you Shazza? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, well, actually, it's a good thing you raised that because I this is our first Olympiast and I reached out to Sarah specifically because I'm actually a big fan. Oh, and thanks. it's because I'm into biking. Yeah. Um, and I... Uh, I just can say firsthand what a huge impact you have had for women in on bikes or in sport generally. I think, oh, thank like I've you. had, oh, <laughs> you you would, I'm sure you would know um, how that because even the numbers we can see from just the sales of bikes and things, yeah. the numbers of women in biking has gone up, yeah, and hugely over the I last. I was actually decade. inspired by Sarah Ulmer as well. Awesome. Like growing up, she was just an idol. So like it, it is cool. And it's, a, it's really weird also at the same time being an inspiration to others because like you go out into the world of sport and your goal is to be the best you can be and perform on the world stage and, and see what you're capable of. And your, your intention isn't to become famous or it's not exactly. like just you're not like going out people, to do yeah, that yeah. and then it happens, but you're like, well, I'm just trying to ride my bike fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it's like adapting to all that the different layers the sudden, and levels that come yeah, with it. Yeah. It was really hard, especially like I'm from a really small town of Kaurau. And so six and a half thousand people there. And so like going into a place and like people recognize me at the at the mall or whatever. And it's just like, this is so weird. Like 
I grew up kind of wanting to disappear into the background and here I am being shoved in everyone's faces I'm like oh really uncomfortable but um there's all obviously there's always pros and cons but definitely pros outweigh the cons but it was it's not normal still <laughs> no well, it's not normal. I hope it's a bit easier than it used to be it is I imagine easier. when it first starts happening that'd be a big kind yeah. of mental yeah weird thing to go through yeah well so BMX wasn't an Olympic sport um, and I was the first at the first Olympics for BMX in 2008. Oh, wow. mm. So before that, no one really knew what BMX racing was at all. Like 99% of the time I'd get asked if I could do a backflip <laughs> to the point where like every time I say no, and they'd be really disappointed. <laughs> and so this was, to the point where I wanted to learn how to do a backflip just so, <laughs> just just so, so I could say, say yes. yes. So can you do a backflip? <laughs> Well, I, I I tried to learn and tried was the the main word. Um, Another broken bone. No, well, it was into a foam pit, so it was a lot safer. But I learned how to do a 360, so I'll, I'll claim that. That's harder, I would have thought. Yeah, potentially, but le- like less mentally challenging because you're not going upside down. You're just rotating. I was also picking up on um, the relationship we've got with GC Smith. Yeah. Three yeah. times uh, world champ. Yeah. 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 Who is, is Jessie Smith? Yeah, tell us about So her. Jessie uh, is a young girl from Gisborne. She lives in Hamilton now. Um, so she, I think she was about nine years old when we were at a world championships in South Africa. And I was racing the elite class and she was this little nine-year-old girl. And um, she'd finished racing. She'd done really well. And then it was my race day. And she was in the pits. Um, in between races, she'd have a bottle with the fan spray thing yeah um for heat because it was really hot oh, yeah. in south south africa and then on the other shoulder was a towel and i'd just be in between races i'd be like warming up or cooling down i'd be like fan and she'd come over and spray me <laughs> with water on my face and like hold the fan up while i was cooling down and then i'd be like towel and she'd come wipe my face <laughs> um she'd just been like right from that age uh just she's shown so much potential and talent um and so I've just kind of helped her as much as I could along the way. And yeah, she, uh, last year she ended up winning the world championships for the junior women, um, in Belgium and yeah, so, so incredible first, um, junior woman title for a New Zealander ever. So really, really cool. Um, but yeah, so in early days you totally helped her find sponsorship and get gear and yeah so I I would um use my sponsors and kind of say like this is what I'm doing can you help me to help them and yeah pretty much everyone was on board so it's been really cool to be able to use what I have to help others Mm. because like when I was growing up in BMX like like I said no one knew what it was so and even once it became an Olympic sport before it was in the Olympics going to people and being like hey I'm trying to become an Olympian in the sport of BMX racing. Like just people had no idea what it was. And so it was really challenging. Um, me and my family would go up into the um, forest out the back of Caldo and we'd do forestry work for fundraising um, to try and get to like world champs and stuff like that. So it was a really hard journey. And so being able to use the profile that I gained from being an Olympian to be able to kind of make it easier for the next generation coming through. Was, Pass that torch a little bit. Well, it was really rewarding yeah. um, for me as well, just to know that the sport has evolved so much since I started at that level. 
So yeah. and it's, it's like cool. you're claiming yeah. this little stake of it for New Zealand as well. Yeah, it's, it's such it's a cool pretty thing. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's excellent. And um, what's happening? Because this is an Olympic year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what's happening in that space? Uh, we're traveling a lot this year. Um, so Olympic qualifying for BMX is over two years. And we just basically race all the World Cups, World Champs. There's lots of different layers to it. And basically each country gets as many points as possible. And depending on how you rank in the countries, depends on how many people go for that country. Oh, wow. So right now New Zealand has one spot. But if we get one place better, we'll have two spots for the women. So right now we're trying to get as many points as possible to try and get to because that would be amazing. Um but yeah, it's 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 really unknown because you're just comparing yourself to another country that's getting as many points as they can. So it's not we won't know for sure until the Everyone's end of May. Still gaining points. Yeah. Okay. So end of May. Oh, so it's a, it's quite a nerve wracking time. Well, at this point. yeah, but I've I've lucky enough I've been through the Olympic cycle three times now. Um, so 2008, 2012, and 2016, and it's kind of I know that. Yeah, that's all happening and it's all complicated, but I just have to focus on training as hard as I can and racing is the best that I can. And it's either going to work out or it's not. So much of sports psychology, isn't it? Uh, just getting the mind 100%, games. 100%, yeah. Like I, I reckon if I had more sports psychology training leading into Beijing Olympics, I would have meddled. Um, I finished fourth by like point zero something seconds. <laughs> right. And, just... and you reckon you talked yourself out of, oh, I, I, I can't do that. No, it was more like my attitude was like, it's possible I could win a medal. Like it would be pretty cool and it's not out of the question. But for London, I was like, no, I, I believe I'm good enough to win a gold medal. And that mind shift of like believing in yourself that you are capable of, doing that or achieving that level. Yeah. That, it that can make you a big difference, huh? It is. It's a huge difference. So if I believed in myself that I could have won a medal in Beijing, I like really like, no, I can. Yeah. Then I reckon I would have. And I saw you actually hmm. uh, make some comments about Jessie, who, who we were talking about before, that that's something you're trying to imbue in her. Yeah. Is that self-belief thing? So yeah. that's and obviously it's, it's something. It's not easy you've... and it's something that takes a lot of repetition and a lot of practice. It's like any, anything like, you're not good at it straight away. <laughs> yeah, but it definitely works. This is why the All Blacks invest so much money in sports psychologists. Yep. Like, 100%. all the sports that have all the money yep. soak up soak up these guys. Yeah. It's really fascinating. It's kind of parallel as well because, so this is a sustainability podcast, yes. right? <laughs> <laughs> Just get oh, back to that. Right, yeah, we'll get there. Yeah. But, 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 I'm so well, starstruck. <laughs> I, I do want to draw a bit of a parallel because I think there is something so applicable about... There's so many reasons to um, despair or not do anything or get paralytic about certain situations that are happening with the environment in particular. But when you set that mental expectation and change that mindset of like view things positively rather than negatively, don't make things a foregone conclusion that they're going to go badly, but actually go, nah, we will fix this. We will suss this out. Yeah. You can just like unlock all this crazy pot human potential yeah. that you didn't know existed. Yeah. And I think it, as a sports person, you can see that in an individual level, but like when a society sort of makes that collective decision, you can unlock all this group human potential and suddenly these weird solutions come out. Yeah. yeah. And I, like I always look at it as, 
like believe that it is possible, but try. Like just go and try. <laughs> yeah. And most of the time, if you believe it can happen, then it usually works out. But if it doesn't, then you can go, well, I tried. Yes. And I think that's something that's really important to me. Um, and I'll go give examples that <laughs> I can relate relate to more. But like for Rio Olympics, um, I didn't qualify because I got injured. So, but I got injured at the beginning of the year. Um, I broke my arm in two places, <laughs> had surgery, came back for the world championships was the last chance to qualify. Um, wasn't ready. Like my arm was, Injury, yeah. yeah, my arm was still not fully healed, but I was like, well, this is the last chance to qualify. I'm going to give it everything I have. And so I got on the gate at the world champs in practice, did the best practice I could um, and crashed again. <laughs> and at the time didn't realize, but I actually broke my shoulder on the other side. Um, oh my God. Strapped it up because <laughs> I didn't realize it was broken. Um, strapped it up. It was a little bit sore. <laughs> but, um, it was a little bit yeah. sore, your broken shoulder. <laughs> but I got on the gate and I, again, did the best that I could with what I had and didn't make it. But like in hindsight, like I did everything I possibly could have and it didn't work out. But because I did everything I could have and there was nothing more I could have done. You feel good about that. Yeah. Yeah. It feels, yeah. it's fine. This it's, is what we say too, yeah. isn't it? In terms of um, envi the environmental stuff yeah. that we're looking at, we've got these, we've got a sort of such a clear choice of just doing nothing because it feels overwhelming or just approaching it with a totally different attitude and doing everything that we can yeah. and believing that we can. Yeah. Yeah. Just like an Olympic athlete. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everyone listening, you're an Olympic athlete. Yeah. It doesn't matter that. if you can't do a push up. Wake up in the morning, look in the mirror. I am yeah. an Olympic athlete. Um, can we talk about your recent move in becoming a Lightfoot ambassador? Yeah. So Lightfoot's really cool. Yep. I think, Wave, you probably know more about it than I do. I've well, got a little fact sheet here, but... Well, there's probably more than I know. But they, they are cool. They, yeah. They've they been around for a while, haven't they? Yeah. Um, almost 10 years, I think. Yeah, Working so. with sports facilities mostly. Yeah. And just helping people to reduce uh, their water, save waste, um, replace the light bulbs. Yeah. They've done some amazing, like statistic-wise, they've actually done some incredible stuff. Yeah, it's actually really, really cool. So, like, I, I loved the idea of what they were doing. Um, so they're basically going into sports clubs around the country and making them more sustainable so that instead of spend, a sports club spending money on power, waste, water, all those kind of, like, things that they need to actually still have to run a club, they can spend more of that money on more sports equipment. And I was like, this is so cool because, like, the kids don't really care about the light bulbs and the water. and Totally. <laughs> but they want to play sports. So if it means that they can get, like, an extra 10 balls for soccer every year or, mm. like... Makes it more accessible for everyone. Exactly. And it's and it's really cool. But it also, the, the added benefit to the whole program is if you're going to sport and you're going to your club and you're seeing that they're changed to LED lights and they've put in, like, water restrictors... Um, so that they're using less water per minute and um, they've got recycling bins and all that kind of stuff. They're learning all about that sustainability at at their sports club. Yeah. And then they're able to take that home and go, hey, what are we doing at home? And so that reach is really massive. 
Um, so that was pretty cool part of it too because if you learn at a young age like about recycling and about saving water and about making sure that you, if you're using electric, electricity that it's like a more sustainable totally. way to use it, then that's going to have more impact um, long term. It's such a powerful thing to put into emerging athletes when they're really young. Yeah. Because then, like, every now and then, you'll become an Olympic BMX medalist (laughs) and get really famous and get recognized at the mall. And you've kind of got, like, that seed has been put on you from such a young age that you then can kind of, like, carry that out. Yeah. So it's quite a, like, efficient and effective way of of getting the sustainability. And the ones that maybe miss the message, they get more sports equipment. So they're just stoked as well. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I love about it, that it's this, like, a great example of win-win because yeah. so many things are, are put in terms of being like win-lose or yeah. a, a, you know if the environment is getting a win then that means you're taking away from something else yeah. but it's not compromise? the case mm. so often like this is a cost-saving thing for these sports centers and also really beneficial for the environment yeah and the stats are pretty huge yeah i'm just looking on my little fact sheet now Install water-saving devices on taps and toilets that are saving 44.3 million litres of water each year. Yeah. That's a lot. That's amazing. Diverted more than uh, 5,000 tonnes of waste from landfills each year. And there's almost 2,500 recycling stations and clubs now. They've replaced over 30,000 light bulbs to um, more energy-efficient ones. And they've only been going since 2011. And they've yeah. already got 166 clubs yeah. um, registered up. Did it, does your fact sheet say how much money's been saved on power? And no. like, I, I think on the website there was a little bit. I remember it being over a million dollars already. Wow. And that's directly going back into yeah. the focus on sport and sports equipment. Yeah, that's, that's money that they're saving. Yeah. And that's hard to fundraise that money if you're yeah. actually out there baking cakes or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's a no-brainer. Yeah. So... This is a bit of a, a twisty one, but you've recently been racing in Australia. Yes. Um, and obviously in Australia recently, they've been having these incredible fires and stuff. Yeah. What, like, first of all, what was that like racing in those conditions? Like, just well, tell us what, what it, was the it was really bizarre because like we have been, I've been following the fires um, for the last month or so. Um, so we raced the last two weeks in Australia, um, flew into Melbourne and drove north up to Shepparton Um didn't really see anything that was kind of any indication of the fires. And then from there, we went to Bathurst, which is just inland from Sydney. Um, again, didn't really see a lot of it, but on the news at the same time, you're seeing it um, in other places. So between Sydney and Bathurst, there's the Blue Mountains, and that was uh, pretty severely damaged by fire already before we got there. Um, and the week before I came over to Aussie, there was a few BMXers already training in Bathurst and they they had posted that like they could barely see like the last straight from the starting <gasps> straight because of the, the smoke from the fires was so bad because the wind that particular day was blowing in that direction and they had masks on at the track and stuff. And so like we, we went over really prepared with for that scenario. Um, but I guess on the days we were there, the wind, well, it was actually a colder week and the wind was friendly and so it was kind of bizarre knowing that all that's going on but where we were in that moment in that time it was completely fine um 
So it was, it was kind of like this. Yeah, yeah. But on edge. And how about the, the, were there Australians there that had been affected or that were just really tired and frazzled and trying to get in their headspace for a race, but all of this is going on at home? Um, I think I think the Aussies that were there, I didn't talk to all of them, but because <laughs> Home World Cup, they had a lot of riders, which is pretty cool to see. Um but like I had overheard someone at a cafe um, talking about they'd been like evacuated from their town, um, which was by Sydney. And this is when we were by Melbourne. <laughs> so um, they basically had been told like they had an hour to get kind of their stuff and, and leave. And then like 10 minutes later, they told just like to stay where they are. <laughs> Whoa. So it's pretty hectic. And, and meanwhile, you're somewhere else in Australia and it's completely fine. So... It depends on the location. I guess it's similar to here, like um, last week, I believe it was, down the west coast of the South Island with all the flooding. Yeah. And then the east coast of the South Island was a fine day. So Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, it just depends on the location, I guess. It's also, it's so tricky because it's like you kind of um, almost need to get that physical evidence of it before you can really have an emotional connection to what's yeah, happening. Yeah, some, like, some of it seems really surreal. So is, is this a thing that you're getting a, a bit more sort of attuned to, paying a bit more attention to like um, in your everyday life? I guess I've, I've always been interested in, in what's happening um, in different areas and just kind of keeping up to date with general what's going on. Um, and yeah, like stuff like this is just... It seems unreal. So, like, to be able to see something like that on YouTube is, I think, important also to just go, well, this is actually happening, especially the last two weeks being over there, not seeing anything directly myself. Yeah. It's, like, actually a reality check. I don't know if that's the right word. But at the same time, knowing everything that's happening in Australia, like, for them to kind of survive and get through this, on the other side, like they need tourism, they need people to go there and actually visit the place. Like, and I also saw that side of it. Like, um, people aren't going on holiday or they're choosing not to go and stay at a hotel or go out to a restaurant. And so all the businesses are are struggling too. Yeah, I've heard this has a massive economic impact just with tourism alone, let alone all the infrastructure that's gone. The area apparently that has been burnt now, and and this is a statistic that's already a couple of weeks old, is the actual burnt area is larger than the South Island. Wow. Dang. Yeah. That's um, crazy, first of all, but also quite a helpful visualization or like I know, being able to relate it to New Zealand. Hectares, don't they? And you yeah. have just no idea what it means. And yeah. you're like, okay, well, South Island's huge. <laughs> mm. Wow. Yeah. Um, I understand that you've got a bit of experience building houses. Yeah. I've, um, it's like my hobby, I guess. <laughs> not, not in the sense I've done it heaps, but, um, like I grew up uh, playing a computer game. This is real geeky. Like I called, love this. Called <laughs> The Sims. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> I'd Google, uh, the, the cheat code to get unlimited money. (laughs) (laughs) And then I just build houses on the game. Like I wouldn't actually play the simulation part. You didn't care about the the people. You didn't care what they were doing. Which is like the whole part of the game is called the Sims as in the simulation. But I did the house building part and I just grew up doing that. And then I got to the point where I was looking at purchasing my first home and I went into all these different homes and I was like, Oh, like, it's a shame that's not facing that direction. And, like, it's really important for me to, like, look at where, like, uh, parts of the house are facing in terms of the sun. Yeah. And, like, using 
the natural energy that the sun gives as well. And so after looking through a few houses, I was like, man, I could do this better. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So I ended up getting a, a computer program and throwback to my childhood designing a house seriously and then i I ended up building it and that was so cool that's incredible so you were using like an autocad program yeah pretty much and then i got i got a a professional person to actually draw it properly with all the framing and everything because they don't know all that part but But you just taught yourself to do it on the software from graduating from the sims yeah exactly (laughs) and um so built it and then lived in it and got to like kind of see how the whole process went and the design of how it actually was on a piece of paper versus how it feels to live in real life. And then um, pretty much from there, I uh, sold that and then decided to do a different version and like do kind of the two ends of the scale. One was like a a really nice place and one was like still nice, but like more spec level. Yep. So what, what, what value for money and what's worth spending the extra money on and what's not worth spending money on and just kind of understanding that part of the industry mm. a little bit more. So for me, it was like my education because full-time athlete, you can't go study an architectural course. In the same way that with Lightfoot, they have had all these cool sort of sustainability outcomes, yeah. even though maybe their main focus was like saving money for the athletes. When you were designing and building that low spec house, did you find anything where there were sort of win-win solutions? Like you mentioned before, using the the energy from the sun, is that yeah. in terms of like heating, obviously? Yeah, well, and- that was my main one, was just making sure that, okay, the rooms in the house that I want to have more heat in summer um, or the rooms in the house that don't need to be hot all the time. Like, so the bathroom, I chuck that in south because, like, you don't need the sun to heat up a bathroom because you're not in there. Yeah, like, you're not living in it. Yeah, exactly. But I wanted, like, the kitchen, dining, um, lounge area to have, like, really nice natural light coming in. Not just for, like, it being more energy efficient, but because it feels nicer. It's got that, that feel, yeah. like, when you've got the natural light coming in. Totally. So, like, it's not just about the house it's about the well-being of the people that are inside the house too like that that feeling i think that particularly for houses those two things are tied together yeah that nice feeling of um a good space good yeah. light is it's, it's well ventilated and it's using like do you, you gotten into the thermal mass thing yeah. yeah 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 so i looked into the like um the foundations and making sure like okay well where is heat escaping and um all that kind of stuff and then looked into what did you find out well, so we did, um, I think it's, uh, I can't remember the brands, but like uh, we did a thermally broken floor, um, but there's still a lot of heat loss that goes out the edge of the... Sorry, what um, does a thermally broken floor mean? Well, so there's, I think most builds have it as standard now, which is really cool, but it was like the um, foam blocks that go in all the concrete. Um, instead of it just being a concrete pad, mm-hmm. you got the foam in there as well, and it just makes it a better... Insulator yeah, exactly. But there's still a lot of heat that's lost out the edge of the slab. Huh. So you can also put um, like a thermal block out the edge of the slab, but that value for money oh. was like that's where it starts getting a little bit tricky because that actually costs a lot, a lot more. And you're talking right on the edge of the slab. So like, is that worth it? Yes or no. Um, but that was when I was building the more entry level. So you really were getting into the nitty gritty of dollar yeah. value for money exactly. stuff. These trade-offs. Exactly. Because like I, I wanted it to be, okay, well, if you're going, can you be sustainable for a cheap 
Like people think of building a sustainable house as being like just the dollar signs. Yes, totally. So I was Big trying, expensive solar panels. Yeah. And all well, the like what can you do that is more sustainable than standard, but without spending too much more than standard? So what was the big answer to the question? A good house design. Can I you you can you build a you, you spend, cheap cheapish house? Yeah, using, you spend a little bit more for sure. Yeah. Um, but I think that the the biggest one was making sure that the floor plan is fa- like the windows are the right size for the side of the house and that you're facing the right direction. And actually, um, like the program I had had like the latitude and longitude of the section and where the sun comes into the house at what time of the day on what day of the year. So you could see in summer where the sun's coming in and where the where it's coming in in winter so that you can adjust. <laughs> Do you have any stuff in your head like looking further down the track that you've got to focus on in terms of sustainability? Um, so things just, you know, forget about the Olympic games yeah. for a second. <laughs> it's no big deal. <laughs> No, it's um. There's there's so many things that we can do, um, which is, I think if we use the word already, like overwhelming. What mm. you can can do, um, but also exciting. Like I think there's so many opportunities and and potential for different things that we can do. Um, probably my my biggest area at the moment is uh, I'm on the IOC in the sustainability and Tell legacy us what commission. IOC is. So the IOC is the International Olympic Committee. So they run the Olympic Games, um, summer and winter and youth Olympic Games. So that's pretty amazing to be a part of that. Because like when I was eight years old, I decided I was going to be an Olympian. <laughs> I watched uh, Daniel Loder, the swimmer, win gold um, in Atlanta. And I was like, yeah. That's a bit of me. That's that's what I want to do. Like. <laughs> And sorry, you, you're part of the what committee? So I am. I became an IOC member as an athlete representative mm-hmm. on the athlete commission, but um, the athlete commission and the athlete voice is really important across the whole organisation. So the athletes that are there as athlete reps, we kind of get divvied up amongst all the different commissions at the IOC. I see. So there's a lot of different ones and so we get put on kind of one or two different ones and one of the ones I'm also on is the Sustainability and Legacy Commission at the IOC. So we we talk about the sustainability of internal stuff at the IOC but also what what is the like how do we make the Olympics sustainable as well? Not just not just uh, in the traditional terms that you immediately think of in terms of sustainability in terms of energy and and waste and stuff like that but also like how do you make the olympics relevant so that people still want to host the olympics and that we still have an olympics moving forward as well because like it is really important to have those inspiring moments so how do you like ensure that that can still happen too as a committee member i'm sure you can't comment on this but <laughs> the first place where my head goes is there is a bit of a history of host cities for the Olympics building these huge structures and then them not really having a purpose after the fact or not being utilised to the best of their um, potential. Is the, are those the sorts of yeah. conversations that are happening? Those are absolutely the, the conversations. So, like, yeah, you had the the last time LA hosted the Olympics was the first time that the Olympics actually made a profit and the rest of them were all at cost. So... Um, Why do countries want to host the Olympics so badly? It's always- why, like it's 
It's a can good com- question. <laughs> can you compare the Olympics to anything else that exists? It's like such a unique event. And I, like speaking as an athlete that wanted to become an Olympian, like there's nothing in the world that compares to it. And as a as a young impressionable eight year old, my life changed by watching that Olympic Games. And so I tried all these different sports. Um, I pushed myself in not just the sporting area of my life, but even in, in school and stuff like that. So like I was inspired to just be a better person. Exactly. And so like you can have uh, someone that's, I don't know, a musician that watched the Olympics and they might be inspired to just be a better music musician. And part of the thing that makes the Olympics so cool is you've got 206 countries all coming together from all different backgrounds and cultures. And that doesn't matter. We're all there together as one, and we really don't have any other good examples of well, the, the entire yeah the race world. religion like that's all irrelevant. Hmm. You're just there being the best versions of yourselves with everything and all together, and it like it's just it's really hard to explain what it is actually like. I but think it's you've just done a good job so though. That's it like sounds yeah it sounds a, amazing. Yeah, that's a that's a really good way of putting what are like aspirational if you're an athlete and inspirational for anyone else kind of vision of what the Olympics is and what it represents in terms of humans getting together, which is kind of what we need to do right now for climate change as well. You know, it's if there was anything to use as a bit of a model to leave all your shit at the door, (laughs) we all got to get together and like do this one thing together. Well, it's such a positive environment that everyone's kind of, leaving the negativity out of it and just focusing on how amazing individuals and people and all these countries and the performances. And it's just about the positive side. And it's, what? it's such a cool place to be in the Olympic village. And if the athletes can do it, you've just set the bar. You've just yeah. showed us all that it is possible. What, what can you tell us about like being involved in the sustainability and legacy um, commission, is it? Yeah. Within the... Yeah, IOC. so um, like, how many countries are on that um, commission? Good question. I I would say less than twenty. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, it's uh, actually chaired by uh, the Prince of Monaco, <laughs> which is also like being around uh, like literal royalty. Yeah, is a bit bizarre as well. But um, like crazy it's, life. Oh, it's insane. <laughs> the unintended so, consequences of BMX. <laughs> pinching myself sometimes, um, but. It's pretty cool as someone that looked at the Olympics and, and had that aspiration for so long um, to also become a part of the organization. Yeah. Like I was a little bit nervous, to be honest, because like you read stuff in places and how bad it is and it's whatever. The internal like organization. The, ne- the negative side of the IOC. So I had I had a bit of nerves, but when I came in there and I realized the people – that are actually working behind the scenes and making decisions. And like, I was actually really reassured as someone that is so invested as a like person in the Olympic games and what it stands for yeah, um, and what it brings and the inspiration that I've had throughout my life um, from the Olympic games. You were proven right that it's like, oh, they're not, they are good people. And just like I hoped they would be. You read the bad news and you're like, oh, I really hope that my like something I've looked up to all my life <laughs> yeah. isn't this bad thing and it and it really isn't so I was really relieved <laughs> and um it's been really cool and special to be a part of that what does it involve 
Like, are you guys on a Slack chat thing <laughs> or do you meet up like yeah, every we, year? Or we, meet, we meet at least once a year. Um, it usually, uh, all the, everyone goes to the Olympic Games, um, whether it's winter, summer or youth. Are you um, making decisions or is it yeah. more around you are so making it's, decisions? It's about kind stuff. of it's high level, so it's more like being on a board. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of staff at the IOC that do all the kind of groundwork and they're the ones that make everything kind of fall into place. Gotcha. But being on the IOC You're like the board as, of trustees. As, yeah, but there's um hundred and one at the moment. So there's 101 board members, essentially. Like there's an executive board that's above that as well. <laughs> but um, essentially we all have input on, on that's a really what small, the Olympics does. Tiny group that you're a part of. Yeah, well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> there's 15 athletes um, that are on the IOC as um, IOC members. Um, and there's another four athletes that kind of help um, but don't have the official title designation. Yeah. How long will you be part of the commission for? For eight years. But Great. yeah, so like um, last year we voted on um, who would host the 2026 Winter Olympic Games. And like I was one of the votes that got to choose who I wanted to vote fun, for, fun. which is like that. Even Wait, sorry, that whole you process, cast a vote or yeah. you guys were voting on who gets to vote? No, I was casting a vote on which Whoa. city would get the Winter Olympic Games. Holy smokes. Yeah. Sarah, how do you keep on top of everything in terms of you've got the work with the committee, and which is huge, epic, and then you're aiming to be at the next Olympics as an athlete? Good question. <laughs> I, I really struggled to start with. So I've been part of the IOC since 2016, the Rio Olympics. So I'm coming up four years now um, for the first meeting I ever went to I probably cried halfway through the week because I was like I don't know how I'm going to do this properly and still do my sport it probably took a year or two to like figure out what that balance looks like Mm. so for example this year um there was the youth olympics um in January uh where all the IOC met um but I had a world cup first weekend of February in Australia so they were all in Switzerland meeting and I'm meant to be there, but the priority was to get ready for a World Cup and try qualify for the Olympics. So I didn't go to Switzerland for this meeting. Man. I didn't go to Rio. So it's, it's been eight since years. London. So yeah. eight, eight years I've been working towards Tokyo. I might still not make it, <laughs> but hopefully I do and I'll give my best to be there. But essentially you race and then the next day, eight years after working towards that day for eight years, it's like, okay. <laughs> now what? Yeah, now what? And uh, Like y- your goal is so clear. There's a day in the future that you know that, that that's when i got to perform. The and intensity the of day, the training leading up and then the intensity of competing yeah. and being in the Olympic Village, I imagine, is like a crazy yeah. thing unto itself. Yeah. And then all of it just goes away yeah. overnight. Yeah. And then you're like, okay, well, what am I going to do? What do you do? What have you done in the past? Do you go? Um, on, do you like? Do you go to bed for two weeks? <laughs> do you go to a beach? Do you read books? I think. Do you go like, party? It, yeah, it's each changed. Donuts. Each one's been totally different. So um, after Beijing, I finished fourth, and I kind of came home. But it, I was quite young, and it was just kind of like, oh, well, like let's start for London. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you just kind of get back into it. But then London, I won a medal and you come home and you do like 
media and you go to like different events and it's like really full on and exciting. But at the same time, I remember then like I just wanted to rest and like do nothing. And then I felt really that I was being ungrateful for all these opportunities and that I like was not enjoying being a medalist because I just all these cool things I'm going to, I just want to be at home. So like I felt really bad that I even had those thoughts. So like I felt guilty <laughs> and then it kind of finishes and then you're like, oh, wow, there's like another four years till the next one. And so it's kind of a weird transitions. And then Rio, I didn't qualify, but that happened before the Olympics were even on. So it was kind of like, well, like, what am I going to do now? There's another four and a bit years until the next one. <laughs> and like, I don't have any competitions now until like for another like 10 months. So like, what do I do? And then you're trying to figure out what you actually do if you're not training. Um, but that was the last time I had off. What did you do in that period? I, I actually got a job. Um, broadcasting um, the Olympic Games. Awesome. <laughs> so I was still involved. Cool. And it was it was really, really cool, and it was super beneficial too because I researched pretty much every New Zealand Olympian that was competing each day and then presented about, like, what to expect from Kiwis that night while, we were, right. while they were competing. Um, so I really found that rewarding because I had to learn about maybe new sports or new athletes that I didn't know. Um and then kind of educate others on like what I'd learned that day <laughs> at, um, on TV. And I, it was really interesting. Like I learned the power, I guess, of the media as well at the same time being on the, on the broadcasting side. Um, so I remember like day five um, of the Rio Olympics, New Zealand had like three medals. Um, and I heard a few people like starting to like be like, oh no, we're like going really bad because I think, at that point, the men hadn't made the medal playoffs for sevens. Um, it was the first time sevens was at the Olympics. And then the woman um, had won the silver medal. And so New Zealand being rugby mad, they're like, oh, no, that, <laughs> this is going horrible. And I, I looked at London, which was our most successful games ever. And on day five, we'd had three medals. Um, hmm. And we're at the same point and we had three, but... But actually, Same we were tally. already doing, actually, on paper, we were doing better than our best Olympics ever. So and so was, you were you able to put so that message out there? because I was broadcasting, yeah. I was like, able to be like, hey, hey guys, guys. <laughs> actually, just chill out for a second. Let's look at the facts. Here we go. And um, the next day, I actually saw the impact of what that perception had given others. And I was like, wow, this is so powerful that just my research and me going, hey, hang on a second this is actually the situation and here's some more facts and more information and that changed people's perception and, and realities. Amazing. Which, That's so cool. And it did end up being New Zealand's most successful Olympics ever. I like that you were able to see the power of the media through giving correct information as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, especially considering your packed calendar, which is giving me head spins just to think about, yeah. um, we won't take up too much more of your time, but thank you so much for joining us on this episode oh, of How to Save the so World much. and talking to us about um, what you're doing, particularly in the IOC, is so interesting. Yeah. And how can people find more information out about um, Lightfoot? Um, they can go to the website, lightfoot.nz. Um, and I think they're, they're pretty much wrapping up a lot of what they're doing, but 
the idea behind it and the information on on everything that they've done and been doing um, is available on the website. Awesome. Yeah. And can people read more about like the sustainability and legacy part of the IOC? Yeah, is they, that public if, facing? Yeah, there is. Um, everything at the IOC is public facing. So you can go onto the website and search all the sustainability and legacy documents. There's like a sustainability strategy that they've got in place that's specific to that, um, as well as the legacy one, which is separate. Um, but yeah, it's pretty cool uh, what they're doing and the direction they're going in. Um the new IOC headquarters that they just built um, is uh, been awarded like the highest sustainability standards um, from all the major sustainability like certifications. Awesome. Um, I don't know them all off the top of my head, but where is it? In in Lausanne, Switzerland. Yeah, and I. Uh, so yeah, it's like everything that they did uh, was like locally sourced if they could. Um, it's got solar panels that run everything. It's got um, lights that only switch on when there's movement so that you, they're not keeping lights on all day. Um, the Everything from the desks to the chairs to the carpet to the roof to the is um, all being considered in that whole process. Amazing. And that's available on the IOC website too. In the meanwhile, thank you so much for coming on the show, Sarah. That's it's right. Been a pleasure thank you. talking to you. Cheers. Thanks so much.